Okay. I guess we'll go ahead and get started uh, with the panel. Thanks, everybody, for, for coming. Um, we have uh, just a short uh, half hour or so to talk about a pretty important topic, which is how uh, we can all help one another in situations where it's mutually beneficial. So it takes a village to do lots of things, and it sometimes takes a village to have a successful investment. And so we have a great panel uh, assembled here today with uh, backgrounds that you'll hear about from each of them in a moment. Uh, I'm Mike Ryan, uh, for those of whom I have not met. Uh, I have a family office, MDR Capital, uh, and spent uh, the majority of my uh, professional career at Goldman Sachs, uh, and then worked at uh, managing uh, money for Harvard University, uh, and then have been investing my own uh, family office capital. And as you may have heard in an earlier presentation, we make our uh, analyst team and our technology available uh, to other family offices in uh, pursuit of direct investments. Um, I'm going to ask each of the panelists to introduce themselves in uh, a little bit longer than I did, but about that time, maybe a minute or two, uh, so you can get a, a flavor for their experience, and then we'll get right into the topic of how uh, single-family offices are pooling resources uh, for mutual gain. Hi, I'm Teresa Esser. I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My angel investment network is called Silicon Pastures Angel Investment Network. My husband and I went to MIT. He started an Ethernet telephone company that raised money from the MIT endowment directly. Um, he, he raised venture capital. I wondered how he did it, and so I decided to research and write a book on how venture capitalists make decisions. If anybody would like a copy of that book, come and give me your business card. Um, I give away copies. It was published by Time Warner. Um, it turned into a foundation, the Venture Cafe. Um, and there are networking events that they put on in eight cities around the world, including Rotterdam, Miami. Um, so you can get a free beer um, out of this foundation paid for by venture capitalists. Um, so I, I make investments in the Midwest Great Lakes region, and I add value to my portfolio companies. I, Midwesterners are often insular. We, um, we work really hard. We work on manufacturing. We manufacture things, and we sell them. We export. The, the Midwest has a trade surplus. We have a trade surplus, and we export out of this country. And I want to do more of that. I want the United States to manufacture more and sell more and export more. And I use big data. I use big data to figure out how we should do that better. So um, I'm on a mission, and my mission is to help the United States export more. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you. Um, I'm Vincent Pica. I'm one of the managing partners of Safanad. I wanted to, I see some familiar faces here. I know Richard's probably outside doing his own networking, but thank him for inviting me back. Um, I worked on the street as well for 25 years for a company called EF Hutton & Company and then Prudential Securities. Left in 2000 to uh, start uh, what eventually became Safanad. Um, we own or control about $10 billion of real estate or private companies now in a small handful of what we call verticals. And um, we are the largest investor in everything we do. We're really an old-fashioned merchant bank. Uh, we started with family office backing, so to speak, uh, but our intention always was to be uh, a merchant bank, a, a, an asset uh, accumulator, and to do that in partnership with other like-minded institutions uh, from the region, from the United States, and from the Far East. Thank you. 
Um, hi, my name is Angela Lee. Um, these days I wear two hats. I spend most of my time at Columbia Business School. I'm the Chief Innovation Officer there and I teach courses in leadership and venture. Um, and then I'm also the founder of 37 Angels. We're an angel network based here in New York, um, comprised of high net worth individuals and family offices. And we invest primarily in seed and series A tech-enabled startups. Um, and we also teach people how to be investors. How do you figure out valuation? How do you invest in the next unicorn that we all want to also desperately want to be in? Um, and prior to this, I'm a recovering management consultant and I'm a former founder. Uh, 37 Angels is my fourth startup. That's great. It's a rush to judgment here. Um, uh, so we are a 300-member investor group, uh, Landmark Angels and Landmark Family Office. So the difference is the, we have high net worth and then we have ultra high net worth in the family office sector. Um, and we put together an investment alliance of some of the top families in the U.S. essentially to what we're talking about here, co-invest uh, together. Uh, we're not a fund yet, although we're raising our first fund, which I'll get to later. Um, and what we do is we invest not just in venture, and the key today will be best investment opportunities. Why? So you don't lose money. That's why. Um, and we do social impact investing in the venture space as well and in other categories. Alternatives. The alternatives we cover are real estate, private equity M&A, and venture, with the idea that we cross-fertilize those investments into an active portfolio between stocks and bonds and these alternative classes where the returns are higher. Great. Hello. Hi, uh, my name is Henry. I represent Yeoman's Capital as well as YGC, which stands for Yeoman's Growth Capital, which is a later stage blockchain fund. So we're we're kind of a rare kind that's a family office that only invests in blockchain-related equity and tokens. Uh, and we're pretty deep in the space. My background comes from Facebook after two and a half years of working with uh, hyper-growth direct-to-consumer companies, uh, advising and growing those companies, um, spending over $150 million advertising growth. And, uh, and prior to that, I, I, my background is in finance, and I grew up in China, Japan. So I spent eight years in China, seven years in Japan. I'm native uh, speaker in all three. Great. Thank you. So just to kick off uh, the discussion here about collaboration and mutual gain, uh, I'd like to ask any of you, uh, do you source a lot of deals from other family offices? And similarly, do you share your deal flow with either a select group or a broader group uh, of others? Uh, yes, yes to both. Um, where our deal flow comes from, uh, they can come directly, you said, from the family offices themselves because we see those opportunities. Um, and then, but most of our deal flow will come from our own sourcing. So we go out to, as a group, to over 50 uh, venture-type conferences uh, a year and bring back what I call best of breed. So there are a lot of companies that compete in different spaces like healthcare energy and so you have to distinguish which ones are the very best. So we have to filter those particular investments that we see as potentials to bring back the very best deals. So what we've done through the family office network we've, we have is we co-invest directly with the other families, meaning they have opportunities to see the same deals. If they're not at the events, we still show them those opportunities. There is a lead family office and then they fill in around that lead. So we can do what we call a special purpose vehicle and put them all into one vehicle. Uh, we're fortunate that in numbers in 2009 we had zero family offices. Today we have, again, close to 140 family offices, not all doing venture, and that's why we're doing the other categories. Uh, 
Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, just to put some numbers behind it, we look at about 2,000 deals a year, and half are completely unreferred, and half are referred from networks, of which family offices are a large part of it. Of our portfolio of 50 investments, 42 were referred in. So even though from a volume perspective we're seeing a ton of unreferred, not surprisingly, the quality is much better from folks that we know and we trust, and I believe you're only as smart as your network. I agree. Um, we scrub the Midwest. We know where just about all the business accelerators, research parks, angel investment networks, early stage high-tech um, venture capital funds. We, we look through our entire region and we um, have syndication relationships, so we'll call people and say, what's coming through? Is there anything that could use an Asia strategy? Do you have any products that can be exported where you're not worried about reverse engineering because there's a sustainable and competitive advantage? And so I, I hunt, and I don't worry about whether deals come to me because I'm going to find the right ones um, by just scrubbing the entire region. So maybe we'll uh, follow on that and ask uh, maybe others, to Vincent, to, to answer. What are the benefits of working with others? Sure. Well, the obvious thing is the, is the diversification of intellect. You know, we all have, I'm sure, you know, suffer from the disease of I'm smart, so I'm smart in everything. It's probably not true. You know, there's very few people that are smart in everything. So the advantages of having multiple partners, multiple insights, multiple perspectives on a particular investment opportunity or a transaction, you know, is, is obvious, you know, unto itself. You know, hearkening back to your first question about deal flow, you're also amplifying your deal flow. I, I would suggest, though, that in the family office building that culture matters an awful lot. Uh, we've had very large institutions that want to invest in us, and the culture just wouldn't be the same as what we are today, which is a partnership uh, in, in every respect. So that, that culture, um, that cultural imperative runs right through everything we do. And I would suggest to you, if you're in the family office building b business, that that sounds familiar to you. Yeah, I think for, from our perspective, you know, opportunities can come from anywhere around the world. You know, so when we uh, when we speak with other family offices, other funds, and the relationship we've built over the years uh, gives us a tremendous amount of opportunity for us to explore outside of the U.S. Um, and as we all know, the return numbers from venture in, in Asia, in China, in Southeast Asia, in India have uh, done much better than you know a lot of the U.S. deals in the past. And, um, and frankly, a lot of the U.S. VCs weren't part of that, right? So, so we don't want to miss that again. And uh, part of the reason <laughs> I was hired on this in this uh, in this role is allowed me us to open up that gateway to Asia and uh, be more global and not just U.S. focus. All uh, right, so we sorry. are uh, we're going to try to pick up our volume a little bit. Uh, thank you. Um, I know most of you have all all the panelists have uh, great reputations and great networks with people that you get deal flow from and share deal flow with. But uh, f do you have any recommendations or thoughts about? other sources, online sources, other sources, tools, places where uh, it might benefit folks in the audience to know about uh, if they are looking to increase their kind of access to deal flow. Can I add something in that regard? And, and the two panels ago, someone mentioned about their architects being a great source of deal flow. So are your uh, auditors, so are your lawyers. It's the person you go to and say, you know, you probably have a client with just a little more capital would be a great client of your law firm or of your auditing firm. And tell us about that person. And then we get into that cultural thing with them. But 
they are really the gatekeepers, unknowingly so, but the gatekeepers, or at least gate advisors, of some tremendous growth opportunities. Now, we're not in the venture business, and I, I, we're very f similar in one regard. You're trying to export our products, I'm trying to import our money back. You know, so it comes from China, it comes from the Middle East. Money, every time you fuel up or buy something that ends up being made in China, I'm trying to bring that money back. So we're, we're in the same game. But the, the idea of where deal flow can come from it's not always the most obvious places, and you just have to think about who's in touch with people that need capital. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to add, I think that's, that's absolutely right. The ours comes from VCs, for example, uh, and, and uh, uh, account, our, our sponsors, Markham and, and, and other people. But I think, the, and you've got the online, you've got Gust, which is the angel platform, which you can see deals through Gust, AngelList, which the VCs participate in. You've probably all seen deals there if you know the venture space. The problem you've got is this. I want to raise the problem. The problem is a lot of those deals are overshopped, and a lot of those are not necessarily the best deals. Uh, don't forget the VCs can invest in uh, literally hundreds of deals with a four or $500 million fund. You as an individual investor are probably going to invest in three to four deals per year. So you can't afford to make the mistakes and saying, well, that video looks good to me or that one looks good to me. You've got to have the best team. So what are the criteria? It's the best, best team you can find. Do they have strategic relationships where your exit's going to go? Before you invest a dollar, you should know what the possibility of that company on the exit side is. That's very important. Lastly, there are other groups that you, we don't have direct access to, but maybe indirect, iconic. Larry, you know, Larry Sergey, Yates, Zuckerberg. And one of our investors, a billionaire investor, belongs to that group. Now, you have to be a billionaire. You bring, you bring your own money uh, to, to there. Um, and then they're going to see the very best deals because they are. It's Silicon Valley deals. Well, the general public, you guys, will not see those deals. But we may be able to see them indirectly because we have that contact. That contact, we can invest through him. That's All right. So that's uh, a good start. Sourcing. Deals are coming from self-sourcing, from trusted relationships, from some of these platforms and from accountants, lawyers, and other gatekeepers. So now you're into the process of thinking about whether to invest. So you have to do uh, your own diligence process or your own decision-making process. Um, give us a sense for uh, what you do and if and how you uh, connect with other peer investors to collaborate on that kind of diligence and filtering and selection process. Um, yeah. Maybe we can start with Angela. Sure. Um, so one thing around diligence is I think it's really important to leverage our network to get deal flow. But for us, we try really hard to still do our own diligence, regardless of how trusted the source is. Uh, the data to show, specifically in VC, where the weird and wacky things are the ones that make you the really big exits, that consensus-driven decision-making actually doesn't work. So for those of you who are thinking about setting up funds, uh, don't have $100 million managed by four people. Have them each manage $25 million. The, the data shows that that leads to better VC returns. Um, so I only share that because as much as we trust our network for recommendations, we always do our own diligence. Um, and the really simple framework there is we look at the four Ps, right? People, problem, progress, and price. So exactly um, as gentleman said, we look for the most amazing team, domain expertise, thoughtful, complementary skill set. We look for really large markets with attractive competitive landscapes in problem. From a progress perspective, I think a mistake that a lot of early investors make and founders is they'll ask the question, how much revenue do I need to have or how many customers do I need to have to be investable? 
and I care much more about whether or not that revenue is repeatable and what you know about your customers' needs than the fact that you have half a million dollars in revenue. Um, if you don't know things like daily active user rate, time on site, all that kind of stuff, it doesn't matter if you're just a really good salesperson, in my opinion. And then, of course, the deal terms, right? The price has to make sense from a valuation perspective. Teresa? Um, I like to use the resources that are available um, to everybody because we're all Americans. Or I like, so um, every time you ship something, you take it to the UPS store, you take it to the post office, you have to fill out a customs form. You have to figure out what's SIC code, what's the SIC code, what's the NICS code. You have to say the dollar amount of the thing that you're sending and you have to name the country. So the United States Customs Office has a huge amount of data about what's leaving our country. And there are programs you can go through to find out if you're making something here, where should it go? And then the thing that I want to do when I'm doing due diligence, um, I ask the entrepreneur important questions to find out how motivated they are. Um, and I'll ask them, um, um, and also to find out if this is going to be a good fit for me. Let's see. Basically, tell me about, you know, would you be willing to go on a trade mission? Have you thought about setting up an office overseas? Um, where, where have you looked? Where are you, where are you selling? Do you have a, tell me about your, your revenue strategy. Because if you just say, what were your revenues last year? You know, what's the customer concentration risk? Did, was it somebody that you know in the region? We have to get out of our region. We have to push ourselves. We can't continue to sit on our laurels, which is what we've been, we've been doing for such a long time. So um, the more big data that I can use, there's a wonderful article, um, Airplane Pilot Protocols in Finance which if you read it, it's very entertaining. It was in the book called The Checklist, Manufac Checklist Manifesto, uh, but it's available free online. It'll, it'll push you to really get up, take it up a notch on your own due diligence. Great, and uh, Henry, maybe I'll give you one last word on this. Do you uh, collaborate in evaluating any of the kind of deal flow that you uh, consider investing in? You have a very specialized area of focus, and so I'd be interested to hear if uh, you're working with uh, collaborators on things. It, we, we often collaborate with the others. So, you know, we have other funds and other family offices that, that we work uh, very closely with in, in many different regions around the world. Uh, and we also rely on some of their expertise. You know, we touch on a lot of different industries from supply chain to security to, to all sorts of stuff. And, and uh, we have, um, you know, PhDs from uh, universities that, that we will pull in from time to time to do our due diligence with us. And, uh, just more sets of eyes to taking a look at, you know, the things that we don't fully understand, uh, the better decision we can make. Uh, and there's no shame in pulling experts from, uh, and, you know, outside of your firm and just to have them take a look at something that, you know, you want to have a second eyes on. So one other uh, question that's uh, come in on the sheet here is, are you familiar with any actual formal syndications where, like, multiple family offices that are uh, independent are coming together on a deal and sharing resources like hiring an attorney or hiring other experts and sharing the, the costs of those kinds of things and then you know closing as a syndicate in a deal. Is that something that you've seen? What are the pros and cons? What's the process been like? So we do that all the time. Um, we've been doing it for years um, with the, in the Midwest. You, you need to work with the other angels because the dollar amounts just aren't high enough. But I think some people worry that if they syndicate a deal, that somebody might um, steal the deal, and that, has, that sometimes happens. Another thing that people worry about with syndication is um, that 
so some people in New York came up with this treaty. Uh, you, have a you have a syndication treaty, and that's if, um, if I borrow your due diligence, I promise not to sue you if the company goes south. And I mean, that's literally the, the trend of years ago was let's do a due diligence sharing treaty. Um, I still have it. It's kind, of, it's kind of strange because everybody is responsible for their own decision making at the angel level and at the, at the deal making level. You know, we're all accredited investors. We're all responsible for performing our own due diligence. But it's an issue when you're considering sharing, with other, sharing your own due diligence with other groups. Who's going you know, to lead? Who's going to follow? Great. Any other input on that from um, the panel? Yeah. William? Uh, okay. Um, I think the, yeah, just to compliment that, that last statement, um, we, what we're doing is uh, it's the individual lead investor which will, which will do, is responsible for the due diligence on that deal. It may be extensive or it may be not as extensive. A VC will spend six plus months doing this. Uh, we have an angel group in, in California which spends on the biotech stuff, which is very complex. We'll, we'll do 65 page memos. That doesn't help really. It may help a little bit on the science. So what has to happen is someone has deep knowledge internally of that particular deal and the others can come around him and share that due diligence. Yes, there's a risk, but they all, they're all going to agree not to obviously sue one another. Um, so I think the, what you're going to see is we're doing our first fund on a pledge fund basis. That one is going to be highly screened deals before they go in then each individual investor responds for their own due diligence because as LPs in a pledge fund, they're, they're investing uh, X, X percentage of their uh, pledged assets in a particular deal. Uh, but you, you need the crowd in here in a certain sense because you want more people in to not just defray the cost, the additional cost of the additional rounds, but, but also to give comfort on, as we just talked about, uh, on the diligence side. Or the other way you can get this is to go plug to our front. You can do it outside. You can go to an outside group to complete that due diligence if you don't have it internally. And the key point, I think, is this. The takeaway is this. You've got to do some due diligence. How much you do, it depends on you. And there's no foolproof way to do a due diligence out there. It's all you can do is defray the risk. <laughs> and the way to defray the risk is there's only one way to do that. That's growth to later stage deals that look more like private equity deals, but they're not at the private equity stage yet. Great. Angela, did you want to add something? In a minute, by the way, uh, I'm going to open it up to the audience for your questions. And so please uh, take a moment to kind of gather your best ones. Um, before we uh, do that, though, I'll ask you know, one more question and ask you to be brief on this. But uh, is there an area right now that's interesting to you? There's a, a kind of deal or a kind of investment that you're excited about because everyone would be curious to hear just in a sentence or two from you about those kinds of opportunities and, and you know what's top of mind. You want to go down the line? Yeah, why don't we start at the far end? Yeah, but for us, you know, we're we're looking at a lot of later stage projects now that, that we can take in and do a lot of enterprise partnerships and deals uh, where we can truly drive the needle, right? And uh, where we can add any value, uh, there's really no point for us to be in it. We're not a passive investor at all. Um, you know, my background isn't passive. Uh, we're we're actively managing and advising companies on a weekly basis. So, um, so the places where we're interest, highly interested is where we can uniquely drive value and for the companies themselves. What we do is through the new fund, uh, <coughs> what we're going to do is that provides the base investment, smaller IRR than the typical venture because, again, look more like PE deals. But that's the base where you're really not going to hopefully lose money, or at least not to the extent the VCs do. 
um, and, and target an 18 IRR in that fund. So highly screened deals going in growth to later stage, just following your point, because I think that's the base for these type of investments. The risk-adjusted part will be in the individual investments in the earlier stage venture-type deals in this space. Um, we're complementing that with real estate uh, and private, private equity in those, all those areas because you should be able to diversify your investments. The last, the last thing is, which I think uh, we're getting to, is what types, is there any category of investment that I would invest in today? I would take a look at the future. What looks good in the future space? Robotics, artificial intelligence, driving, driving different businesses. Uh, to the extent you can identify those businesses in advance, and that's what you should be investing in. Um, one specific area that we're looking a lot in is if you think about virtual reality, if you think about the hardware of virtual reality, we're not investing in that because we think that's very difficult to predict. We're also not investing in the content layer in terms of what sits on top of it, but we're investing in the software layer that enables that content to sit on those devices. And so we're spending a lot of time looking there. And then uh, another fun one is cannabis. God, I already graduated from Columbia. I went to Berkeley. Come on. <laughs> Well, I, I mentioned earlier we're in a handful of, uh, we call them verticals, that's uh, senior and specialized healthcare. We're in uh, suburban office, we're in data centers as the landlord, not as the operator. We're in uh, student housing. And uh, we are opening a new vertical this year uh, with a group called Highgate here in the city to start investing very specifically in hospitality in the city of New York and other gateway cities. And the rationale behind that is Occupancy is always very high. That's why it's so hard to get a room in the city. But what, ver what, what fluctuates is the price of the room. So the, the supply component means that's an incredibly important part of that financial equation, that economic equation. And if you look, which we do at big data, there are very few permits issued for the next three years in the city of New York to build hotels. So supply will continue, will hold constant basically, although there's an argument that it will actually shrink because the uh, the Grand Hyatt at 42nd Street is going to lose about 700 rooms in their conversion. Uh, but there's no reason to believe that people will stop coming to the city of New York. So in very specific uh, niche, uh, non-branded hotels, we're looking very carefully at putting a couple hundred million dollars of equity to work in that strategy to capture that lack of supply and the concomitant increase in revenue that has to be associated with increasing demand. So I have two themes to talk about. One is keyword mobility. That means smartphones, smart cars, smart cities, and the whole, the whole way the world is going to change when we go toward driverless cars, when we go toward electric vehicles, driverless electric vehicles. I just was in Beijing listening to people talk about the future. I was in Seoul listening to people talk about the future. I was in Taiwan. They all said the same thing. They said mobility. They said electrification. The second thing is food, food, precision agriculture. Precision agriculture, the rise of the global middle class means that there are many, many, many more people on earth who want to buy good, delicious food. Sources of protein, how can we get sources of protein to the world? Um, that's it. Great, I'll throw my two cents in and then we'll go to questions and comments from the audience. But I think, uh, oh, sorry, did you go? Just want to share one resource with the group. For those of you who want to get smart about an investment thesis or what an investment thesis looks like, just Google Bessemer investment thesis. They refresh it every couple of years. But right now they have about 10 white papers. One of them's on mobile, one of them's on consumer, one of them's on India. Just a good place to read investment theses. Yeah, the only thing I'd add to that, and then we'll get to questions, is um, 
you know, sectors and specific themes are always the most exciting things to focus on and to talk about. But there are some sort of general things that are on our mind. One is um, there's just a, a tremendous uh, premium right now for growth and stability. And I like growth and stability as much as the next person. Uh, but you can really generally buy uh, attractive yet maybe volatile <laughs> cash flows at a very, very low price today in today's world because growth and stability has been priced so dearly. Uh, and then in terms of industries, um, we tend to like a lot of very large industries that have not been modernized substantially. And so the application of technology or just modern methods to them can really make a big difference. And so the construction industry, the agriculture industry outside the U.S. in particular, uh, and the, you know, the restaurant industry, these are big industries. They're not nearly as exciting as a lot of the uh, consumer and enterprise technology or the sharing economy or the personalized uh, digital medicine. All of those are very interesting and exciting in their own respect. But some of these fairly boring industries that are modernizing with technology, uh, the technology and solution providers there are really attractive. So um, with that, we're going to take questions again on you know, syndication, mutual sharing of uh, resources for mutual gain. Questions from the audience for our great panel? Please. All right, anyone want to take that one? I'm not sure I understood the question. Uh, when people start collaborating and then it goes wrong, what do you do? Um, Good example of how you've dealt with that situation in real life. Um, I had a situation earlier this week where I needed to show some leadership. There was an individual who's physically much, much taller than me, who was also much, much louder than me, who was taking control of meetings that I was in. And I said to him, um, you know, you're really, really impressive. Your, your resume is impressive, everything about you is impressive, but this is my, this is my um, organization and I need to be in charge. And I can't afford you, you're so great, I can't afford you. Another way of um, kind of letting people know that um, you need to be in charge, which never fails, and it never fails, is if you say, I'm not smart enough to see how we can work together successfully and make money. I'm not smart enough. <laughs> They'll never argue. All right. Words to live by. Uh, any other questions from the audience? We have a couple of minutes remaining. Please, right in the front. I'm just curious, and, and I'm not sure how much the panel's dealt with this, but how do you perceive or how does the role of a lead investor work for family offices versus the typical VC lead? And is it, is it essential to investing? Um, is it... Do you feel comfortable investing without a lead? The, the lead doesn't necessarily have to be, like we, we combine family offices with our high net worth investors. So it's who has the particular expertise in the space that's willing to take that lead because they're responsible for the due diligence. The family office may, may be, in that case, putting in more money uh, than, the, than the high net worth investor, but we want to make sure that, that he will follow, because a lot of the family office don't have particular expertise in the venture space at all. 
So they, what they generally do is hire from the outside. So they're generally amenable to have someone else take the lead, but the, by default, they'll hire uh, a particular outside consultant to give them the due diligence that they need. It, it does depend on what you mean by lead, right? Because sometimes it just means the person who's signing the original term sheet that everyone else has to agree on. It, but it doesn't always mean that the lead does the due diligence for everybody who's in the round. So the two are not um, synonymous always. So I think just be careful when people say lead exactly what that means. Could I uh, expand on that answer? Please. What we mean by lead is no one invests more than we do. Okay? So, you know, we're 20 or 30% of the equity at all time. I don't have any clients. I have lots of partners. And it's cold comfort that if it doesn't work out, no one's lost more money than we have. But what it makes us do and what it makes a family office believe, an institution believe, is that we're working every day to make it work as an investment because I can't fee out my risk with their money. Great. Right here in the front. Thank you. My name is Antonio Harris. We're emerging fund managers, and I would like to ask this question specifically to Teresa because you were a co-GP with a Korean sovereign wealth fund, and I'd like to ask the same question to other uh, early venture capitalists or uh, super angels uh, as far as where you guys could uh, find co-GPs for other emerging managers. And um, as you think, this will probably be the last word on our panel. Well, anybody who's a, who's a GP could be a co-GP with you if you made that deal with them. You know, if you get along with them and you say, would you like to um, agree with me on every single one of my deals? Um, or do you want to work together and we'll be joined at the hip? Um, that's what being a co-GP is. So everybody has to un unanimously agree. But, you know, if anybody vetoes it, then you'll, you'll all be saved from making that mistake, but within that group, you'll get the benefit if, if they have something, you know, you're just, it's like proposing marriage. So find, you know, find any GP that you might want to work with and then pitch them on that. But, okay, with the Korean government, they have, um, they had a specific program with the last administration um, that have, there was a co-GP relationship. So the, the Koreans are specifically interested in, um, getting relationships outside of the peninsula. So they were looking for foreigners who wanted to come into Korea. And with that, um, they put on conferences, Invest in Korea Week. And, you know, that's where you learn about all their um, programs. Great. Well, I want to thank the panelists for sharing your wisdom and your time with us. And uh, I think all the panelists will be outside and downstairs for uh, the next little while. Thanks so much. Thank you.